Let's begin with the reciting the Lord's Prayer together. I think if it's up, we, we know it by heart, I'm sure. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. God's kingdom, there shall be no end. I'm going to be reading a lot today out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm reading today out of the New International Version. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. There, I finally found it. I do know what comes after Romans, so. (laughs) Lord, give us wisdom and understanding to your word this morning. We pray that you will speak to our hearts, that we will be encouraged, that we will be challenged, and that we will be motivated to further the kingdom of God wherever we are at. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when we pray that prayer, our Father who art in heaven, we're really acknowledging God. A lot of people pray that prayer, and they're really not living for God as their Father, are they? And not what that has to be like. And then we pray, and we say His name is holy. You know, we are to be holy as well through the, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His love comes into our life, changes us from the inside out. Changes us from the inside out. His love, His acceptance, His cleansing comes into our life, doesn't it? And then we go on with that prayer and we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's easy to pray, but very few people are really involved in seeing His kingdom come, are we? If we are really convinced that His kingdom is the only answer, His kingdom is the only legitimate government, I say that, acknowledging that there are governments in the world, but His is the ultimate government that will rule and reign in the coming time when Christ comes back and sets His feet on the earth. All governments, all kings, all prime ministers, all ambassadors, you name it, all politicians will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and will bow their knee to Him. Isn't that something to think about? All the leftists, all these people that hate Christ, hate God, they will bow their knee to Him. To bring the kingdom of God, though, is not just something we pray. To bring the kingdom of God means it takes our all. It takes everything in us. It takes all of our purpose, our vision, our finances, our finances, our finances to further the kingdom of God. See, we have to put our money where our mouth is, as they say, right? Putting our money where our mouth is. 
So I just wanted to leave you with that. A few thoughts as we talk about furthering the kingdom of God. Praying, preaching, and finances are three of the three major, major factors that most people overlook. Let's move into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And being the Easter season, we've been teaching about Jesus' death, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. Two weeks ago, of course, was Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. But this morning, Michelle had a message last week, a wonderful message. We were gone. Most of us men were at the men's advance. But let's talk today about his resurrection and what that means for us today. What does his resurrection mean for us today? Well, there's so much that's found here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then I'm going to just start reading through it. So if you will follow along with me. Verse 15, 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. Gospel means what? Good news. I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Have you taken a stand for the gospel? By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. That word, if, is one of the most powerful words in the Bible, isn't it? If. Smallest, one of the smallest. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, right? That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 500 people. Let's just stop there for a moment. Jesus appeared to over 500 brothers, he said, at one time after the resurrection. Now, if you came, I've used this point before, but if, if you said to somebody today, I don't believe there was a World War II. I didn't see it. I, I don't believe it. I don't believe there was a World War II. Well, people would come out of the closet and they'd say, my, God, my dad was in the war, my uncle was in the war, my brother was in the war. And here are facts about the war. We have it nowadays, we have video, so we have all kinds of films about the war, right? And then I have, we have friends that went through the war, and we have eyewitnesses that went through this horrible, horrible carnage of World War II. The same is going on with the Holocaust. We, people are saying there wasn't any Holocaust. There wasn't any Holocaust. That's all made up. It's all fabricated. But the reality is we have footage. General Eisenhower had the common sense to say, I want this all filmed because in the future some so-and-so is going to come along and say that it never happened. He said, we're going to prove it happened. People today, have there's witnesses, family, some of you know people, have known people that have gone through that. So here we have, we have the witness of 500 people, 500 people at one time. And then he goes on, and Paul goes on to write, and he says, most of whom are still living, 
though some have fallen asleep or have passed on. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what we believed. You know, at that time, the apostles felt that Christ could be coming back any time. The early church felt that, right? And so they gave it their all to preach wherever they could. They preached at every opportunity, all the cities. Paul writes in one place, he said, I don't think there's any fresh territory for me that's left. I've preached everywhere. I've brought so many people to Christ. And here we are in what we feel are the last days, the end times, and we're saying, well, Jesus is coming back soon. Let's just sit up here on our rooftop and wait for him. Isn't that what we do in a lot of churches? Let's just sit in the church building and wait for Jesus to come back. Someday he's coming back. And you know what? Things are getting worse and times are getting worse. And you know, prophecies are being fulfilled, and they are. But we just have to, we just have, these are the end times. And so what more can we do? Jesus is going to come back and rescue us. What if the early church would have had that same mentality that we have today? I don't think there'd be a church, or very much of a church. The impact in the world would not have been the same, had not, unless God would have intervened in some way. We need to understand that times are short, and it's all the more important that we put our time, our prayer, and our energies, our talents into furthering the kingdom of God and building up the local churches. Wouldn't you agree? I got two people. I'll, I'll, give, you another, I'll give you another try. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? Yes. It's a little better. Okay, thank you. All right, let's move ahead. Verse 12. But if... But if, it, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Isn't that what we hear today? He's speaking probably to people in the church. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So he's making a point here, isn't he? When we read the New Testament, particularly, we have to, we have to remember several things. One, we have to understand the culture, have some understanding of the culture, Two, we have to understand what's the question or what is the problem, right? Three, we have to understand what is the context. What is the context? So there's some problems going on. Some people are not are denying that the resurrection happened in the church. So Paul is making a case. The same thing happens to us today, right? How could a man be raised from the dead? Only medicine can do that. Only science can do that, they might say. But 
Where did I leave off? But he did not raise him, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. So he's saying that those who die and pass on, if they're not being raised, and if then Christ wasn't raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What is he saying? He's saying if there's no resurrection, then it's all in vain. If there's no resurrection, we have to tag everything. Our, all of our hopes, everything is placed on that resurrection. Right? If there is no resurrection there, for Christ, there's no resurrection, not even a hint of it for you and I. So we might as well just go about life, eat, drink, be merry, live like the rest of the world, live for yourself, live in selfishness, live in your own pleasures, because tomorrow we die like a dog. Dog lovers, I'm sorry, there's probably dog lovers who think your dog is going to heaven with you. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but I don't know about that. He's not a part of the race of Adam, so I, don't, I can't speak for that. But dead, like, dead as a roadkill on the side of the road. How's that? You're just dead. Okay. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. We're a sorry lot. But then he goes on. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep are those who have died. When he writes fallen asleep, he means those who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Do you remember the first man? For as in Adam all die. Why did we all die in Adam? Sin is passed on to generation to generation. So in Christ all will be made alive. But hallelujah is right, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You know the Psalms prophesies of Jesus that he is going to put all of his enemies under his, will make his enemies his footstool. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier in Philippians, Jesus or Paul writes, he said that every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Those above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. Every demon in hell, every, every person, every human being. No matter how important they think they are today. No matter what their position is today. No matter how arrogant they are. No matter how, what, when, where, whatever. They will bow their knee. Even those who don't believe, they will see him and weep and wail and gnash their teeth. The nations will weep and wail and gnash their teeth. Because we have a hope in our resurrection and we have a hope that in Christ's kingdom coming back to this earth. 
It's, an only, it's only partial. When he came to the earth, there was a partial establishing of the kingdom of God on the earth through the body of Christ, right? Through the church. That the day will come when the fullness of that kingdom and Christ's feet come down on the Mount of Olives as it prophesies in Zechariah and splits the mountain. And that kingdom of God will come onto the earth. Then it goes on to say here, I'd like to read that part over actually because it's so powerful. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God. The Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Listen to this. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under his feet, under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will make subject to him, be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all and in all. Now, backing up here about the, the enemy, the last enemy is death. If you recall in Hebrews chapter 2, there's another reference to death. If you like to turn there very quickly, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14 says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He, Christ himself, likewise also partook of the same. That means he became a man incarnate. He became in flesh and blood. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And we'll stop right there. He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Let's take it a step further. He gives help to the descendants going back a few generations of Adam, does he not? Jesus Christ was of the Adamic race. He was born of the Adamic race, was he not? And his redemption is for whom? The Adamic race. Those who are in the Adamic race. He did not die for Neanderthals. He did not die for chimpanzees and gorillas. Or people whose ancestors they think were chimpanzees and gorillas. Because then you would not be of the race of Adam, would you? You would be of the race of chimpanzees and gorillas. Primates, right? So... This really has a lot to say about evolution, which is really a huge factor. I'm just going to take a moment to step off onto the the evolution trail. This has a lot to say about evolution for those who believe that they were probably evolved and evolved to a point where there was two people, the first two parents, Adam and Eve, and then it moves on and down the line, right? If that's the case, we're in trouble. And it's really shocking how many churches, how many Christians believe that. We were in England some years back, and it was amazing. A number of the churches we were in, they believed that 
God created everything, but it was all through the evolutionary process, which we find in Greek mythology is where we find a lot of the source of that. So we have to understand that if we're not of the race of Adam, then this doesn't apply to us. Pardon? Genesis 1. You're really quiet out there. You're paying attention, okay. <laughs> created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. We are not created in the image of uh, uh, amoeba or, or protozoa or a fish or a mammal of some sort other than a human being. We're different than all the other mammals, aren't we? Because we're created. That's why life is so... Precious. That's why the Jews in particular were so uh, very much, uh, they honored the body. They honored the body. The early Christians honored the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to talk about in just a few moments as we go along here. Okay, let's move ahead. All right. Now this is coming up to an interesting part. Did I leave off in 29? Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for the dead? What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, that's, that's a real puzzle. A lot of people are wondering, what is that? What is it? And I don't know if anybody really has a good explanation of that. Uh, there's no other teaching of being baptized for the dead. And so, again, it's context. It's context. So I have a footnote that might be helpful. Some were denying Christ's bodily resurrection. In response, Paul states that if Christ has not been raised, then there is no deliverance from sin. Clearly, those who deny the objective reality of the resurrection of Christ are denying the Christian faith They're denying the Christian faith altogether. They are false witnesses who speak against God and His Word. Their faith is worthless. They are, not their, they are not, therefore, authentic Christians. Baptized for the dead. It could mean, these words could mean baptized because of the dead. may refer to those who became Christians and were baptized because they wanted to be reunited with their departed Christian friends or family members in the life to come. Doing so would be useless if the dead are not raised. So that's another way to look at that. Nonetheless, verse 30, And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ, Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We might as well live it up. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. He's quoting something there. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So he's bringing a rebuke to them. Bad company corrupts good morals. How many Christians, just another little rabbit trail, how many Christians have I known over the years that said, well, I'm going to 
go back to my old crowd so that I can win them back, or I'm going to go into this people or those people or hang out with those people and let them know that I'm a Christian, I can still be cool, and what happens? They're right back in, aren't they? They're right back into their old sinful lifestyle. Bad company corrupts good morals, make no doubt about it. My grandfather used to say, show me your friends and I'll tell you what you are. Show me your friends and I'll tell you what you are. So let's move ahead to verse 35. But someone, and we're getting close here, we'll finish this part. Someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, we all understand, some, sometimes people don't know what the word sow, S-O-W, means. It doesn't mean like a needle-pulling thread. It means to plant in the ground, sowing. What does it mean? What, does, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. So what is he saying there? He's saying, now it's springtime, and a lot of you are thinking about gardens. If you plant a bean, you're not planting the whole bean bush in the, gra- in the garden, right? Unless you buy one that has been planted from the greenhouse. But if you're planting a seed, you're putting a seed into the ground, and the seed germinates, and it brings up a plant. A bean plant, if you're planting a bean. Corn, if you're planting corn. Radishes, if you're planting radishes. That's the point he's making here. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another. Fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon, another, and the stars, another, and the star and star differs from star and splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Let's just stop there for a moment. Death is an awful nasty thing to look at, been with people that have died. And it's never nice, never looks nice. The undertakers can do really good jobs of making people look somewhat nice. But the reality is when people die, we don't look good. Maciated oftentimes, disease-ridden, mangled, whatever it might be. But that body's going into the ground, it's going back to the ground one way or the other, and it's going to eventually decay. It's corrupted. But the body that comes forth when we are raised, when we are resurrected, the body that comes forth is a glorious body. It's a glorious body. It's like the type of body that Jesus had. 
You remember Jesus ate after the resurrection? He could drink after the resurrection. Right? But he could also walk through walls after the resurrection. So his body was a glorified body. No aches, no pains, no disease, no mental issues. Perfect. Incorruptible. It won't decay. You won't get gray hair. You won't fall out. It'll be a glorious body. How old will we be? I don't well, we, well, How old will we look? I don't know. Probably how we looked in our prime of life, I suppose. Let's go ahead. So before we run out of time. So it is written, verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Notice he says the last Adam and not the second Adam. He was the last Adam, Christ. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. What does it mean, the dust of the earth? It means that every one of us are made from the elements of the earth. Right? There's carbon, there's calcium, there's copper, there's iron, there's all sorts of... It all comes from the earth, doesn't it? That's why we have to eat. We have to keep retaking in those, that nourishment to keep this body strong and healthy. Let's move ahead then. He was of the dust of the earth, and from the dust we will go back. As with the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man... So shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Who is that man from heaven? Jesus Christ. We will bear his likeness. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? In every way. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. And then he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He quotes this. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Do you hear that? Ephesians chapter 6, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. What does it mean to stand firm? It means to be solid. It means to be steadfast. If you recall Billy Graham, we were watching a video that Victoria had given us about Billy Graham. And in Billy Graham's early life as an evangelist, he had a very close friend. His name was Templeton. And Templeton was a very good evangelist himself, very powerful man in the Word of God, brought many people to Christ, and Templeton began to shift off. He got off track. He began to go off into liberal theology and such. 
And as he did, he began to attack the Word of God, and he began to attack Billy Graham for that. And Billy Graham, maybe you don't know this, but Billy Graham went into a time of great uh, turmoil in his mind and his spirit, very anxious, because do I follow the direction and how do, that this man, my good best friend, is telling me? He's telling me what we believe is old-fashioned. It's no longer valid today. It does not change people's hearts. We need to, we, we need to, we need to put more value into science. And these are myths and, and, and all sorts of things. And Billy struggled and struggled and struggled with that. Because he had to get it right. If he was going to preach, this call of preaching the gospel is burning in his heart, but yet he's being tempted, is he not? And he's being challenged. And he spent time with the Lord. He went off in the woods someplace and he spent time with the Lord and he has had a very anxious time. And finally he settled it. And he settled the fact that this word is true and it is the word of God and it has the authority it claims to have. And when he settled that, he went on to preach in, for what, six decades nearly? Six decades. And now maybe you don't know. I'll throw this little bit, little something in here. He preached in Madison Square Garden, I think, for six weeks with pack-out crowds in the heart of New York City. Six weeks he preached, and people kept coming. They filled the streets. The power of this gospel does not wane with the culture. The power of this gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. Each and every one of us needs to make a stand. You and I are going to have our times, if we haven't, that Billy Graham had, where we are being tried and tested to see if, when the pressure comes on us, what stand or what, which direction we will run. Will we make a stand or will we run back to where we can please men? and be accepted by the world. Something to think about, it isn't. So standing is so important. Take a stand to know who you believe in and be persuaded that he is able to keep that which we, us, have committed unto him to that day. And that's where we have to be as Christians in this world today. Because let me tell you, there's a lot of people, they're in our country, they are born and raised in our country, who hate Christ, they hate God, and they hate our country. They hate churches, and they hate religious people. Now, you might meet them in the grocery store, and they might be the nicest, kindest people you ever met. They might wish you a nice, pleasant day, but deep down in their heart, they hate this whole thing. We have to take a stand. And if we believe in this resurrection, we must take a stand for Christ. What's the option? Right, yes. They take great delight. So let's just close up here. As Paul writes, he said, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Aren't those comforting words? Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. When Jim writes those prisoners, and he's got a whole list of people that he writes, it's not in vain. When you are sharing the gospel with somebody, when you are sharing, inviting people to church, when you are handing out a Bible to someone or a track or giving people encouragement or smiling at them, your work is not in vain. 
Your work is not in vain. Let's stand as we close this morning. Oh, Jesus. Your work is not in vain. Our work is not in vain because Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, you and I have that hope that we too can be resurrected from the dead and will be resurrected in a glorified body. Is there anyone here that needs to make a recommitment of your life to Christ or make a commitment to Him? I want to give you just a few moments before we close. Anyone here? Thank you, Lord. Well, Father, we pray for each person here that you will strengthen each man, woman, and child, that each person will be strengthened in you, Father, that each person will be strengthened in this truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation, Lord. Thank you as we leave this place, this church building today, Father. We thank you that you don't leave us, that you don't just meet us in church, that you are with us and in us if indeed Christ abides in our hearts. So I'd like to encourage you to make a stronger stand for him. I'd like to encourage you to put more effort into the kingdom of God. Whether it's yourself or whether it's your silver, whatever it might be, into the kingdom of God. So, Father, we thank you and praise you for all that Jesus has accomplished. We thank you for changing our hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and to a heart of love. Thank you, Lord, that you put your spirit upon us and in us that we may become bold for the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you all praise, all glory. to you and to you only, Lord. And we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless you. God keep you. God make his face to shine upon you and let his light shine from you.